Nick Mount is a professor of English literature at the University of Toronto, an award-winning critic and former fiction editor at the Walrus magazine. He regularly gives public talks on the arts in Canada and has appeared on TVO's Big Ideas and CBC Radio's Sunday Edition. In 2011, he was awarded a 3M National Teaching Fellowship, the country's highest teaching award. He lives in Toronto, where we are actually sitting in his office at the U of T, to talk about Arrival, the story of Can Lit, his latest book. So the way you said Toronto, it almost sounded like there was an apology in the, the pronunciation. <laughs> was that Sorry a, that was I'm that here. For, was that for you or for me? <laughs> I, yeah, it was, I spat it out with a kind of yeah, a Yeah, but it just sounded like I, you know, I, the thing is, um, <laughs> one of the, <laughs> it was just a, a curious twist on the, he lives in Toronto, like the word was in quote marks or something. Right. Um, well, I was it, reading it out of your book. Okay. Right? It's not unrelated to the conversation in a way, because uh, one of the things that's come up in, in some reviews is that perhaps the book was a little Toronto-centric, yeah. and that uh, that was because I was a professor at the University of Toronto. Mm-hmm. I... I I had my early childhood in Nova Scotia, in a small fishing village in Nova Scotia, and I spent my teenage years in the interior of British Columbia. I did my undergraduate degree on one coast and my graduate degree on the other coast, and, and Toronto was the last place in the world that either I or my wife ever wanted to come. You know? So you're presenting your bona fides here. Well, yeah, it, you know, it just, just seems ironic to me to get some ultimate. Toronto's what Canadians love to hate, right? Yeah, we, yeah. we are to Canada what Manhattan is to the Midwest. Yeah. Anyway, such is life. But you don't just cover Toronto. You cover, you cover the places where things are going on, Montreal and Vancouver, and then you get criticized because you're not covering the stuff that's going on in Weyburn. Yeah, and, and, and you know, with, the, with, with some justification in, in some, some cases. I mean, one of, the, one of the things I definitely learned from writing this book is that I would never again start a preface with the phrase, the whole story. <laughs> that seems to have yeah, been, to have been a, a yeah. fatal error. Yeah. What I meant by that was, was a story that would combine the stories of publishing with the stories of readers, with the story of writers, right? Exactly. That's what well, I, that's what I, got, that. I yeah, got that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't mean, obviously, you know, every story. No, no. But it's a very easy phrase to misinterpret. No, it was something that was quite conscious. I mean, in fact, the, the chapter on, on Atlantic Canada was the last addition to the book. Uh, and, and just rereading it, both my editor and myself really felt the lack of, in particular, the presence of Alistair MacLeod. Mm-hmm. MacLeod was a tricky one because his salt, lost salt gift of blood, I think, is 76 or 77. So it's it's technically after the cutoff date I had established in my own mind, yeah. 1974. But he began writing those stories in the 60s. He wrote those stories in the 60s, and he published many of them in magazines in the 60s. And he's such an important writer. I, I just I couldn't I couldn't leave him out, you know. So and, and including him then opened up a chapter that allowed me to include Alden Nolan, you know, Tom Dobb, what was happening in Newfoundland again a little later. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean obviously the hot spots for this are Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, St. John's. And, and, and limited places, other places around. There's not a lot that is concentrated on the prairies themselves, and that's what the people I think have seen at the blind side. There's writers who came from there, but there's not much by way of uh, you know large literary communities that are forming in the prairies. Not at this time. Allow me to quote myself here. 
Sure. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was nodding. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is radio. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Here we are. Arrival presents a kaleidoscope of succinct, often amusing vignettes that describe the story of what's now known as the Canlit boom, stretching from the late 1950s to the mid 1970s. I just wanted to get that in because some people don't know the book. It's uh, it's describing what and why there was an explosion in the, in the literary creativity in this country, in Canada, yeah. during the, those years. So uh, I'll start off with, now, where did this passion, obsession, interest in Canlit start for you? Well, actually... Or is it any of those? Huh. It's all of those. It's all, all of those. You know, and a job. Yeah. Um, so it's a <laughs> perfect, perfect combination. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's all those. Yeah. Um, I actually began, and my I was hired here. My field is early Canadian literature. That's that's my main field. I, I I'm a specialist in Canadian literature prior to 1914, right. and that's what my first book was about. When Canadian literature moved to New York, it's about it's about a, a, a time in Canada when the conditions that made for the Canlet boom did not exist. So a significant number, just about everybody in the country who was a writer or hoped to be a writer left the country, mm-hmm. many of whom ended up in New York. And they got published by oh, American Stone presses. and Kimball. Yeah, Stone small, and Kimball, small neat, presses, neat and, and big presses in the States. Yeah, you know, okay. Most of the, 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 the writers prior to this period, I mean, you know, people like even up to Hugh McLennan, for crying out loud, McLennan's published first in the States. It isn't mm-hmm. until like his so fifth novel. So was Pierre so Burton, Lucy Montgomery, Stephen Leacock. The list is pretty endless, mm-hmm. right? Um, actually, I'm going to hesitate on Leacock. I don't know enough to be sure about his publishing here, because I know he was with M&S, I think, well, but first, I'm not sure. But certainly with McClellan, Jack, uh, with uh, Hugh McLennan, Lucy Montgomery. At any rate, so I, I, I got into early Canadian literature, and it was partly, to tell you the truth, for kind of mercantile reasons. And what I mean by that is that at the time, or mercenary reasons, maybe mercenary and mercantile are the same thing, um, there, there weren't many people working on the field. Um, so when I was an undergraduate and a graduate student, I'm looking around like all my colleagues want to work in American literature. You know, seems to me that's going to have a hard time finding a job doing that. And I also, I also like sort of unabashedly like potboiler romances. You know, so like something like John Richardson's Wacusta, which is a novel that to me is so bad it's good. You know, I, I kind of actually enjoy reading that sort of thing. So that was how I got into it. In terms of this book. It's mostly just a, a sense of my interest in the 1960s in particular. Mostly just be, one of those things where you, you keep going to the bookshelf to look for the book, the, to look up something. The reference book. The reference book, and it's not there. Yes. So, a, a big part, and you know, honestly, if this was the United States we were talking about, Arrival would have existed 50 to 100 years ago. You know? What, what explains that? Uh, well, for starters, you know, uh, um, huh, it's a good question. Uh, I think it takes about 50, 60 years, as Sir Walter Scott says somewhere, that it takes about 50, 60 years for history to get turned into myth, you know, for re- to reach the point where an event is far enough in the rearview mirror mm. of a society that you can begin to actually talk about it as a story, a uh, narrative. Mm. So in that sense, the timing is about right. I, I think there's an additional factor, and that is that by the time the Canlet boom happened, the profession of which I am part had become a profession, had become 
pretty thoroughly professionalized and specialized. That's not true of the time when American literature had already arrived on the scene. In other words, by the time you got to thinking about big books about American literature, there are writers other than professors, and there are writers who are thinking about a market other than the uh, you know this market about the specialists. I, I think that was horribly unclear what I'm trying to say, but uh, you're uh, saying that there's a market. There's, there's more than just an academic interest. There's a general interest. Yeah, and the thing is, is that within in my field, we're not really trained for, or frankly, encouraged to right for that market. The jargon keeps everyone out. Yeah, and and, and, a book like this doesn't count academically. You're not going to get a raise because of it? Well, I I happen to, it all depends, comes down to the individuals, the the chairs and the individual departments, and and I happen to have a chair and a department and a university that frankly I feel very supported by whatever I choose to do, including this. But officially speaking, no, that's not a peer-reviewed book by University Press. Mm-hmm. In my world, it does not count. That's an interesting topic. I know I was just over in Oxford, and I was looking through some of the the CVs of the various uh, professors there to see who might be you know, having an area of interest to me. And I was amazed at how many of them actually were involved in podcasts and wrote for the Times Literary Supplement and... You know, they spread it out, and I don't know if they get they get credit for it, but it, uh, I, I would think that they so do. We're, we're at a moment of transition right now about mm-hmm. this. Uh, my administration, the, the senior administration of the university, as well as the, the senior members of various granting bodies, in my case, the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada, uh, would like nothing more than would like very much for us to do what they call knowledge transfer. That is, they'd be quite happy to see us attempting to you know, make the, the, the transition between town and gown and engaging in more outreach, more academic outreach. What I'm talking about is academic culture itself, which is much slower to change, much more conservative, uh, much more resistant. Um, well, hence some of the sneering reviews of this. Yeah, I mean, you know, most of them... No, almost yeah. all of them were, were positive, except it, it turned out that a few academics didn't like it. Yeah, so... One of the dis- disappointments, I mean, I, I shouldn't say, because, you know, I'm ecstatic about how yeah. how well the book's been, how, how much it's been talked, how well it's been. I'm kind of blown away, frankly, for a book about books to get as many reviews. In fact, I think the National Post, I think, actually reviewed it twice. I think they, I think they actually forgot that they had already reviewed <laughs> it, which I've never seen happen. And it was post-media, so it meant that it was in, like, 20 papers. <laughs> and it's ridiculous. And anyway, but it is a little disappointing for me, nonetheless, I did not write this book for academics. I knew, of course, they were going to read it. I would, yeah, you know. Yeah. But almost every single review has been by an academic. And and uh, maybe that says something about, you know, who the book editors have in their Rolodex or, you know. The Stars uh, wasn't. Uh, the the, oh, well, the Globe I was. I think he's got a PhD, but I don't think he's an academic. Uh, who, we t- who did it for Alex, the star? Alex. Alex. Yeah, Alex is not an academic. You're right. I think he has a PhD. Um but the one in the Winnipeg Free Press was, the, the Globe was, uh, and, and, and in some cases professors, uh, more often than people, uh, you know, people on their way to becoming professors, grad students, that kind of thing. Yeah. Which was fine. It just, it, it's kind of, it's that weird thing where you made a present for one group and then it's another group that. Yeah, it's that just it's sort of a, filtering it for the rest of yeah, the Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's, a, that's another discussion here. I want to get to the, yeah, of course. To the book. The book is a, a, a 
in some sense, a dialogue with, or maybe not a dialogue, but a reaction or a, or a sequel to uh, Margaret Atwood's survival. But what's your take on Margaret Atwood's survival? I mean, it, it is in a limited sense a response to, or a, a sequel to. I mean, it's a response to the, the very last line in survival. Yeah, it's a response to the title in, in more ways than anything. I mean, basically my point is that Atwood's survival was written at a time when the general perception was that that's what Canadian literature did. It survived mm -hmm. as opposed to thrived. Yeah. And then from there I make the simple point that the book sold 50,000 copies and, you know, demonstrated the existence of a literature whose title it doubted. Right? And so the, that's what my book is about, is about trying to explain how that happened. But as, well, a book, so as a book itself is what you're asking that's what about? That's I'm asking, yeah. I, I think it was far more important in the period than many academics would admit. Um, I know many, many high school teachers and many university professors robbed it, mm -hmm. stole from it for syllabi, for course suggestions, and for the thesis that we all beat the hell out of, the survivor thesis about canlets full of victims. And when I say stole from it, I don't mean just in terms of we, you know, reused it and, and, and rehearsed that thesis. We got our own rhetorical energy out of beating up on it. Well, I think you know what my sense is that she's a she's a gadfly. Yeah. She put that out there. She's saying it. You know, it's miserable. Our literature is miserable, and a lot of people reacted saying it's not miserable. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly right. And so something similar happened with Grant's Lament for a Nation, right? With Lament for a Nation, there's Grant writing a book that's saying Canada doesn't exist. Sizable, chunky young writers come along, some of them explicitly, like Matt Cohen, and say, well, then we'll write it. Yeah. Same sort of thing, right? Same thing, yeah. um, But it's a book itself. I mean, there's a lot of the, st the different victim thesis spots she goes through, and I, just, yeah, I yeah. think that's largely nonsense. I also think the overall thesis of the book is largely wrong, because I think uh, Al Purdy said in a letter to Margaret Lawrence that, look, being a victim is kind of the spine of all of literature, isn't it? You know, <laughs> and... and I'm with I'm with Purdy on that, so I don't I don't think that in that sense. But oh, you got to admire the ambition. I mean, honestly, she went back and she read. You know, yeah. uh, she was the first one to try to put it all together into a single narrative, and then give us lists at the end of yeah. further reading. Like it, it is. It's kind also of really well written. It's it is, fun. And she's Margaret Atwood. It's yeah, at really. her at her worst, she's more interesting than most writers. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. Okay, so it's uh, it's kind of a response to that. She says it's uh, survival, and you say, well, we've arrived now. Mm -hmm. We arrived between, uh, now why did you pick these years, 59 to 74 or thereabouts? Well, I mean, there was a lot of different small things rather than any one thing. 59 struck me as a, a neat sort of beginning for the thing, in, in part because a number of significant events that happen in the year. It's the publication of The Double Hook. It's the publication of um, Apprenticeship of Duty Kravitz, The Watchstone and the Night. These are three pretty big novels. It's Robert Fulford begins writing the first daily book column in the Toronto Star. Liber I think he's a, a, one of our greats. I, I, really I agree. Do. I agree entirely. I agree entirely. Mm -hmm. um, Liberté begins publishing in Quebec, the main journal of the Quiet Revolution. Al Purdy gives his first reading in 59. Margaret Atwood publishes her first poem in 59. It was a constellation of a lot of small things that came together in 59. Mostly what I was after, though, the specific year doesn't... It's always arbitrary in these yeah, things to yeah. some extent, right? Mostly what I was after is that moment where we'd emerged out of, of post-war prosperity 
into genuine affluence, which was slightly two different things. Actually, Fulford is quite good on this, that prosperity just means, you know, economics. The numbers go up. Affluence is your own sense that you're prosperous, your own recognition that I've got a bit of money to spend now. And I'm, as you know from reading the book, that's kind of what I think is the main force driving all this. Um, so yeah, Galbraith. Uh, yeah, Galbraith's The Affluent Society, yeah. which was itself a bestseller in mean, 59. Um, mm -hmm. So... Yeah. You know, so this is, as for 74, the cutoff date, that's a bit even more arbitrary in some senses. What the primary, the reason for my ending, I mean, probably the better answer to the question you're asking is that the, the simplest way of answering it, in 1960, the, so this is the, f the first, the journal Canadian Literature also began in 59 at the University of British Columbia. And the editor, George Woodcock, says we're going to review every book of poetry published in the country, and they find 24. 1974, they say, we think there's going to be 300 published and we're giving up. So that's what I mean by the ending. Do you see, it's not, the ending is not all of a sudden the st stuff stops, mm -hmm. quite the opposite. It's that all the questions that people have been asking for the last 15 years, like where is our Canadian literature, where are these infrastructures? There's an avalanche of it. It is an avalanche of yeah. it. Yeah. And, and you don't even have to ask the question anymore, right? Yeah. What is CanLit? Where is CanLit? Because it's evident. And that's what I mean by the end of the boom. The other thing, and you also cite all sorts of examples of how book production goes way up. The numbers and, go through the roof. Yeah, and also you know the number of universities quadruple, yeah. or you know things like that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Readers obviously the multiply number of readers uh, available for publishers to yeah. market to. Yeah, that's quite right. I mean the, the the yeah the number of universities goes up fourfold over this period. We opened twenty two universities in this country between the beginning of the 60s and the mid-70s. I mean, that's yeah. that's mind-blowing. Yeah, it is. You know? Um, U of T went from one campus to three, you know? Um, and it's to accommodate the baby boomers. And not just the baby boomers, it's also to accommodate the affluence of the boomers who are now wanting a better education and better lives. There's a lot of, there's a lot, it's kind of perfect storm yeah. of ingredients to come along. The one thing I, I don't... Are you the only one to see this or not? I don't think so, in part because, I know I'm not, in part because the phrase, the can-lit boom, is not my own, right? That that was something in the currency before, I don't remember where the first time, I think the, I think I mentioned in a footnote, some of the first mention I've seen of the phrase is from the early 80s, but by the time I'd begun studying Canadian literature, can-lit boom was a, a phrase, I mean, I just, I, I didn't, like, I almost like, it had no author, and that's part of the way I wrote the book, because I'm like, hey, here's this phrase, and there's no story apparently it was something big one thing I do want to make clear um, because it's an easy argument to misunderstand when I say boom I'm not referring to a golden age right this this is not a golden age argument it's not about this is a period of being this is when all the best books were written in Canadian literature right. um, because that's simply not true there are some very good and very important books then there's also a lot of crap and I know because I've read both um, and there are, there are better books written now will be better books written in the future it's a quantitative explosion that interested me, not the qualitative explosion. And as I say, you do in the book outline a lot of quantitative data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I like numbers. You're criticized for that, though. Uh, there, are, there are, again, some academics out there who think you emphasize the economic argument too, yeah. too much. I'm not sure exactly what their alternative uh, uh, explanation is, but um, Atwood points to the fact that there were no huge giants. There was a aesthetic freedom and absence of a tradition that uh, left, a, what, gates open for 
the achievement of literary greatness. Is that what, what do you think about that argument? So, one of the things I learned writing the book, mm-hmm. and even better from reviews of the book, people who work in what they regard to be as non-economic pursuits, not like uh, the arts mm-hmm. or criticism of the arts, generally don't like to be reminded of the extent to which they're part of the capitalism, um, of the, the power of economics and the extent to which they are themselves um, a part of that world. And the first hint I had of this is that when I was interviewing writers for the book and I was pursuing this notion that some part of it at that time an unknown of part to me was because of affluence. A lot of them said, what are you, what are you nuts? Affluent? I mean, you know, we're, we're poor, right? Stan Bevington told me, we found our Coach House Press, that we, we bartered printing work for baloney. But the thing is, is that, it wasn't is that them, a, though. It was society that yeah, was Yeah, brilliant. and it's also them, too, because Stan Bevington's father would never have imagined that he would drop out, you know, drop out of university mm-hmm. and go print poetry for free. You see yeah. what I'm getting at? It's not just... I'm rich. I've got money. It's, in fact, it's not even mostly that. It's I, I have what Frank Davy called the luxury of larger aspirations. I, I can contemplate a life without a job, and that is something that has been inconceivable to the generation that came before Stan Bevington and before the people in this book. Um, just the idea of dropping out, right? Of just I'm gonna I'm gonna write poems. Not only am I gonna be a poet, I'm gonna give them away. I don't understand. Well, it, affluence is not just the money you make, right? It's also leisure. It's also time. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's also the, the ability to imagine yourself as not being dependent upon having to work. And that's what changed in the 60s, and it affected not just literature. Right? The idea that you could just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go join a band. Yeah. Right? But you, you I'm gonna typically write poems. you're young... You you know you you don't you you're you're not risk averse, right? And what society's going to pay me a welfare check if I if I crash out? Yeah, I, 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 yeah. The notion that that there there are things around to support me, the, the the society itself around you has become affluent enough that it's it's harder to conceive of of poverty, right? Harder to imagine that yeah. the, this choice you're making. Right, because the generation before that is, is told, you know, go get a job. You have you, to work. You, you yeah. have to work, and there's a whole generation. It's more acceptable. To, it's more acceptable. To, to yeah, pursue a, a to career in the or what you want to call it, yeah, the, the arts. Yeah, to step outside the you know the suits, right? The, yeah. The, 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 so, see, so, so I'm not terribly surprised when 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 people push back against the economic argument because you know we all like to believe that we're we're. A, above or outside of capitalism and, and nobody likes to believe that more than artists or we're not I'm, I'm not a, i'm not a marxist but if you're not a little bit marxist you're just not paying attention you know it's mm-hmm. economic forces in a capitalist society are the single most powerful set of forces mm-hmm. they're in behind everything that we do yeah. Yeah. A- and um it's inconceivable to me that they would not be in behind literary production Right, that they would not be a significant part of that story. Mm-hmm. And the story we've told so far has mostly also been an economic story, but it's about the little bit of money the Canada Council gave to writers. That's right. You talk about, uh, in this perfect storm, you talk of, about the Canada <coughs> Council setting up and funding 
writers, yeah. writers and residencies, grants to, to writers, later on to publishers. That's not really part of this period, but, but in Quebec it is, but not, not in English Canada. Yeah, and so we've been content with telling that part of the economic story because that's a story that's a story about nationalism. That's mm -hmm. a story about you know the Canadian people using its tax basis to you know to foster the arts, and it's true, we did. It's just nowhere near as big of a factor as the rising affluence of the entire audience. Yeah. Not even close. Yeah. Um, I mean, one very simple indication of this is that, you you ask yourself the question, why does it take, uh, was it eight years between the Massey Report, which recommended the Canada Council, and the, and the Canada Council itself? And if you read the appendices in the Massey Report, it's kind of abundantly obvious. That the, so the government says, that, go find out what the problem is, why we don't have any culture in Canada, why we don't have culture. Not the word they use because we're told they couldn't use it. But why we don't have, you know, <sighs> literature and everything is surrounding that. Opera. Yeah. And then they hear back from hundreds, thousands of individuals and organizations all across the country talking to them, yes, about the problems they have, but also representing the very arts that aren't supposed to exist. <laughs> right? right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I was, you know, uh, what is it? It's not Pearson. Louis Saint Laurent. You know, if I looked at him in a glance at the footnotes, it's like, it looks to me like they're doing okay, boys. You know, <laughs> we don't... We don't need it, So it was not a priority. It just wasn't a priority. The priority was getting money into the hands of universities because they were struggling to keep up with new buildings to accommodate all these new students. And that's where half the money in the first round of Canada Council grants went. $100 million, and they gave half of it to universities to build buildings because that was the priority. And you you make a, a, a amusing reference to, what was it, the butterfly wing flap oh, in yeah. Brazil? My editor hated that line. Right. Yeah, yeah, because he's, he, he's kind of a chaos theory guy. It's a reference to chaos yeah, theory, yeah, that line. Yeah. And he was trying to explain to me how I had it wrong. And I said, I'm sure it's wrong, but I'm not going to be fact-checked by a physicist. It works for me as a metaphor. A couple <laughs> of guys died, right, and had a lot of money. and. That's right. So, yeah, what happened? Isaac Walton Killam. I'm blanking on the name of the other one. He was a steel baron from New Brunswick. And they both happened to die in the same year, and they left $100 million in estate taxes to the, to the government. So new money, surprise money. The same time that Louis Laurent has to go give a speech to university presidents, and he doesn't have anything to say in the speech. And so one of his advisors says to him, $100 million just came in. Remember that Canada Council thing? Next thing you know, we've got a Canada Council for the Arts and a speech to university presidents mm -hmm. that tells them they're going to get half the money. Mm -hmm. And the vast bulk of the Canada Council money in its early years went to universities, not just for capital projects, but for, because there's no shirk, right? There's no, no body funding scholars, graduate mm -hmm students and professors are, are, are getting money from the Canada Council. Mm -hmm. The amount that goes to writers is peanuts, chump change. Uh, one person we haven't mentioned yet, and I think he's, he's huge, is Jack McClellan. Mm -hmm. uh, and he starts really kicking in mid-late mid 50s, right? I mean, it, it, yeah, so uh, he, he really, I mean, he goes to work for McClellan Stewart. His dad. His dad. His dad. Um, earlier than that. I mean, mm -hmm. pretty soon comes after. Comes out of the war. Comes out of the war. Yeah. So it's like late 40s, 46, yeah. 47, he's already working there. But he doesn't really take over on his own for a while. Until about 59. There we go. Yeah, it's, you know, <laughs> we're all, all of a sudden, you know, it's a little earlier than that, I think. Yeah, I think it but, is. But, yeah. but, but um, no, Jack was, a, 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 by all accounts, a force of nature. Yeah. 
And, you know, he genuinely believed that Canadian books could be made to sell, that, that yeah, yeah. Handled, handled properly, promoted yeah. properly. Evangelist. Yeah, you could sell these things. So yeah. it's not just, for Jack, it's not so much about promoting Canadian culture because that's a good thing. He was a Canadian nationalist. But, for example, he didn't believe in, in grants to publishers. Jack mm -hmm. McClellan, he took some towards the end because he needed them. But he did not believe in grants to publishers because he thought that they diluted the instincts of the publisher. His idea was he picked the best books yeah. and he sold them. Um, and once in a while... Well, the most saleable books. The most saleable books. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, he also... A complicated guy. I mean, so on the one hand, you got the Farley Mowat Pierre Burton combo that is basically keeping the house afloat throughout the 60s. And but that is also allowing him to do things and crazy things like publishing Sheila Watson's The Double Hook, right? Which which his own advisors told him, look, this is far too difficult for the audience that we publish for. And yet, you call it the most important influential, no, the most influential. Canadian novel ever published. You get a bit of flack for that. Yeah. It, and I hesitated. That's you're referring to the, the star system, which I... Um, yeah. No, no, you uh, actually said, I think, in quotes, the most influential Canadian novel ever published. Yeah, and, and, and I can, you know, I'm not, I'm not... When I say most influential, that's a different claim than best. Yeah, yeah. Most influential is yeah, a claim yeah. I can back up with evidence. Um, best is a value judgment, if you see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so back it up. So, that's, it's weird, that's a book that's been more influential on poets, Canadian poets, than the novelists. And if you've read the novel... I would argue that most Canadian poets don't even know the name of the novel. Um, to today, this generation, you're probably right. You're probably right. It was a massive book for B.P. Nickel. It was a life-changing book for B.P. Nickel. He picked it up in a Salvation Army and read it literally like it's it's his St. Augustine moment. You know, read this, become a writer. Um, it was a beacon for Michael Andace. Huge book for Andace. George Bowering says it's the most important book ever written in Canada and the most important book he ever read as a writer. Those, those are all poets. Yeah. Um, and they're all an older generation, admittedly. Yeah. Um, but they were big during... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Watson, I think what it is is that the thing about the double hook, um, you know, there's this, there's this recurring notion that, that Canada doesn't have modernism, right? Robert Croach was the first one, I think, to sort of articulate this, but it was a kind of commonplace that we went directly from Victorian commercial fiction to postmodernism and just skipped over modernism entirely, especially in fiction. And Watson is kind of the glaring counterexample to that. Um, there are other examples. As long as you, you start thinking about modernism differently than, you know, T.S. Eliot and Joyce, and there's lots of modernisms in Canada, so that we defined modernism by European examples. But even defined by those examples, because Watson was clearly reading Beckett and Eliot, and, you know, you could tell by, by reading The Double Hook. Even defined by those examples, this looks like a European modernism that she's doing. But with a very Canadian, very Western Canadian, voice. And in 59, nothing like that existed. Right? The idea that, look, this was somebody that was showing us how you could internalize the best of European literature and reproduce it in an authentically Canadian voice. I thought it was a big deal. Um, and Jack saw that. And Jack saw it. Well, Jack, and there's, it's mostly it's a professor. I'm blanking on his name. He was a guy at University of Alberta. It'll come to me. 
he was his advisor, was he? He, he, he pulled the book. He, he knew Watson, found the book, and he wrote Jack a series of ever-persistent letters saying, look, this is the most important book ever published in Canada. If you don't publish it, ever written in Canada, if you don't publish it, you're making a serious mistake. Uh, and Jack read it, and so he agreed. Um, Salters, Frederick Salters. Okay, so that was Double Hook. I did, I should say that, well, no, it's okay. Well, I'm just going to say that you weren't asking me about the stars, but you, you want to say I that. I will, but, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so in the book, you know, there's these sidebars, and I... And I, uh, I love uh, them, too. Uh, Evaluative uh, criticism, bring it on. Yeah, you know, I mean, I hope it's clear to people that these are my opinions. Yeah, and yeah. That's part of the reason why they're separated from the main narrative. The main reason they're separate is because... They're there to argue with. Yeah, that's right. And, I, and I, you know, I, I didn't want to slow down the main story with literary criticism. That was part of it. The, the story is already complex and large, and so I didn't want to pause to do evaluative literary criticism of any kind, really. Um, it also was a way of allowing me to suggest that the story is bigger than the story that I'm telling, because some of the sidebars are by people who don't appear prominently in the book, right? So there's a world outside here. And there aren't many that come in first. So the way the system works is there's one star for got published, because I think everybody should get one. You yeah. know, two it's for an accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, two for occasionally interesting, three very good, four excellent, five world classic. And I never actually counted how many books got five stars, but a number was, of readers. That's eight, of course. Right? The, is that eight? Is I that? I, I have eight. never counted. Yeah, it's eight. And and, and just we can talk about most, but Watson's was one of them. Yeah. And. Uh, that's one of the ones where the judgment, the rating, is a combination of, of both my impression but also my sense of its importance. And I think, therefore, a little wrong is what I'm trying to say. That importance well, factor came yeah, in too much? Yeah, because too much. Yeah, yeah okay. Because presumably... The influence it, it had on others. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, presumably enjoyment has got to be part of what you mean when you say something is five stars. Big part. And as important as it is... I don't know many people who describe The Double Hook as an enjoyable novel to, to read. Um, and that's one of those really tough ones, right? Like, what do you do with these books that are sort of, you know, recognizably of vast importance in literary history and yet are so difficult, they're so obscure mm -hmm. that they virtually exist to defeat the reader's desire to like them? Yeah, anyway. at it could be fun. Yes, that's funny. right. That's right. Funny. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you on that list of eight, you include civil uh, elegies, yeah. the, the martyrology, journals of Susanna Moody, and I think quite a few people would, would question whether or not those are world classics. But yeah, lives of girls and women, I think. Yeah, and uh, lost soul, gift of blood, I think, and I think there's one of Mavis Gallant's. There's one of Mavis Gallant's, and there's one of uh, Alperti's. Is there one Alpert? I think it's Alperti's collected. Okay, maybe I did. Is it? I, I can't remember. Okay, I think. Okay, I think. Okay. In one sense, some people said that that doesn't seem like many, but to me, 15 years in a country the size of Canada, if you're on, you know, that actually seems like too many. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's so few that books that are great. Yeah, you know. yeah. So you include Atwood, uh, Dodge, Monroe, the key players, Richler. These are the... These right. are the, kind of the stars of the boom, right? Yeah, there's about... So the book, the way it works is that it's 18 chapters, and each chapter 
except for the last, I think, begins with a kind of short biography uh, of a. So, in other words, I had room to. to, to I only had room in the book for about twenty uh, biographical profiles in any mm-hmm. kind of depth, and then trying to gesture to the very large cast around it. So, yeah, I tried to pick the people that I thought were most important to the story at that time. And these are names that uh, the world would know. Uh, I don't know that's I don't know if that's true of all of them. The ones that I mentioned. Yeah. But yeah, but like, you know, the book begins with Harold Sonny Ledoux. Which is a point that I want to uh, this sort of gets me into one of the criticisms of the book which which I disagree with, but it's out there. And that is that uh, and the question is is blackness erased from can lit? <laughs> so, in this sorry, book, we didn't. We, you should mention that Sonny Ledoux was from Trinidad. That's right. And that's in fact, when I read that, I, I like I hadn't even heard of him. Yeah. So why is he starting this off with some guy I've never heard of? Right. Right. Are so, you doing that to cater to this this audience? Uh, I I don't know if I'd phrase it quite that way. Um, I, I I think that. Ladu and what he represents, in particular, um, the arrival in Canada of a significant em- non-European immigrant population. At the time this book is set, Canada is 95%, Canadians are 95% of European origin. Yeah, it's white bread. Uh, yeah, very much so. And so, therefore, is its literature. And, um, you, and you can't change that. And you can't be criticized for covering a bunch of white writers because that's all there were. Yeah, no, yeah I, I would hope or, so. Or, or not. Know, that, there's, well, a, there's an argument being made out there that it, that it wasn't all white. Yeah, so, I mean... Is it, it, was it white or wasn't it? At the, the mainstream of the story... Overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly. But what do you so, mean by mainstream? Well, I mean your, your I mean, view of it. I mean or? the big the writers we were actually paying attention to at the time. We there were. Are, who's we? The writers that got noticed. The writers that are getting published. The writers that are getting reviewed. The the writers that are being given prizes to. I mean, I don't think I'm gonna, I might be wrong about this. I don't believe there's a single non-white writer in the period to receive a GG. I, I'd have to, I'd be shocked. I, I'd have to yes. check, but I'm pretty sure yeah. I'm right about that. And that's not because of any prejudice. It's just because of numbers. Well, it, it, it's probably partly because it is overwhelmingly because of numbers, right? That the, the, as I say, 95 percent of the Canadians. But this is the moment when all that is changing, right? And this, the 60s. So one of the reasons that Toronto becomes so important to the book is that Toronto suddenly changes from a boring, you know, provincial city. In this exciting, uh, cosmopolitan, diverse city that it is today, and one of the factors driving that is the arrival of immigrant populations. Non-white. Non-white. That's right. Yeah. Well, initially, uh, from places like uh, Italy, uh, mm-hmm. Portugal, mm-hmm. Um, you know, doing crazy things like opening coffee shops and jazz bars, and you know, the places where a lot of these poets started reading. Yeah. But then, increasingly, from places like the Caribbean of which Harold Sonny Ledoux is part. Right? Okay. So the, it is part of that narrative. And I thought myself, Ladoux is a tremendously interesting figure uh, and unjustly forgotten. So I wanted to start with him. I wanted to, in a book that is mostly about the most well-known, I wanted to begin with a writer that most people don't know. That was, that was quite deliberate. Okay. It was also quite deliberate that he's not white because 
the rest of the cast overwhelmingly is. Now, when you talk about critics referring to the, you know, or the erasure of black literature, primarily what they're talking about is the, the relative lack of space given to Austin Clark in the book, who is by far the most important black writer in the period. In fact, you know, in terms of recognition, the only really significant black, black, black Canadian writer in the period. There are, of course, others. I mean, when you start going off the main path, there are always writers that self-published or that we've never heard of, or, you know, there's always other stories to tell. This isn't that book. But Austin Clark, well, there's a number of simple reasons why he's not, he's in the book, but he doesn't get one, as much profile as some would like to see. And um, that's partly because the reason I just gave you, I only had room for about 20 people, so it's a sheer, you know, where am I going to fit him in? And I didn't have a chapter I could fit him into. It's mostly because Clark is actually one of the very few writers in the period that are profiled in length of the book who is more important today than he was then. Well, when did he win his Giller? He won a Giller, right? In the 90s. Polished Yeah, 90s, Polished Toe. Yeah, but when I say more important, forgive me, because I'm an academic, and that's kind of the lens through which I'm looking at. Like, Clark is hot right now, like in terms of as an academic property, as an academic interest, conferences, graduate students, dissertations, far more, far more than, you know, like not even, say, you know, Pierre Burton or, or yeah. you know, or even B.P. Nichol or Dennis Lee. So another, what I'm trying to say is that I, I didn't see any danger that Clark's career was going to be, you know, diminished because I didn't give much stuff because he's, he's doing better than the rest of them right now. All that said, Clark was then and is now a far more important writer than Harold Sonny Ladu, and I should have found a way to give him more space in the book than I did. There, those people are right about that. He should have had a bigger role in the book, and I regret that he doesn't. You're also criticized for ignoring Aboriginal writing because apparently there was an explosion of Aboriginal writing during this same period. Yeah. Is I, that true? No, it's not. I disagree with that one pretty strongly. There is an explosion of Indigenous writing in this country, mm -hmm. but it does not begin until well after the period that I'm talking about. Um, we can argue about the dates. Um, Thompson Highway has a, a new book just out. He dates the start of the indigenous renaissance in this country to 1980. That sounds about right to me. Um, but it's certainly after the period that I'm talking about. There is a book by Stephanie McKenzie that tries to make the argument that there's an indigenous renaissance, the literary renaissance that occurs in Canada in the 60s and 70s. Most of her examples are drawn from the late 70s not from the 60s and 70s, mm -hmm. um, from the late 70s. And she doesn't actually have that many examples. Um, it, it's, it's a book that, to my mind, is rather long on theory and wishful thinking and rather short on evidence. So, you know, uh, I, didn't, the, I, didn't, I didn't agree with it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not that one didn't take place. It's just that it didn't take place until after the period you're covering. That's right. And this is a staggering one. If you were going to write this book about the 80s and 90s, yeah. or especially, my God, right now, the yeah. indigenous renaissance would be a huge part of the story. Okay. At the time of the book, the only one to achieve any kind of commercial recognition, the only indigenous writer to get, would be Marie Campbell's memoir, Halfbreed. Yeah. She's in the book. I, I talk, you read the book. I read Good. the book and I talk about stories. it in the book. It's a good book. It's a very good book. Yeah. It should be read. 
Um, there's one that I kind of regret not knowing about. It was pointed out in a review. I think the man's name is George Clutesi. And he's a, a British Columbia writer, and he wrote a collection of fables, um, indigenous fables, true true fables, not nonfiction. But the reason I wish I'd have known about it is that apparently it was taught to UBC undergraduates in the 60s, to thousands of them. And that's exactly the kind of thing I was looking for. That would have qualified to me, if I had known that, as important, as recognition. I did not know that. Um, so there's, But other than that, no, there, there isn't any significant. I mean, you have to remember that in the 1960s, 1950s and 60s, the peak years of the residential school system, yeah. Indigenous peoples of this country had other problems. Um, life and death. Yeah, problems. life and death problems. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Our literature goes from, you know, let's, put, let, let's use this really quotable phrase that you've come up with, from a country without a literature to a literature without a country. So we're all writing about the world now and international immigration and so I hope the first part of the phrase is reasonably clear right from a literature from a country, from a country without, without a literature. literature right well that's what Margaret Atwood said earlier on right right yeah that we you know that I hope the book in other words has done the job of explaining how we you know how we got a literature right um, it's just really the second part you're asking me about well actually there's criticism of the book saying that you know it just Literature just began in 1959. There are great works prior to that. Yeah. And you're saying... There is. But there, we're, there. You're saying we're a country without that, though. Yeah. So which one do you want to talk about first? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got that, lots that, of time here. So. That there's a literature prior to this? or, or, uh, or Well, let's look at both of them, then. If okay. You, you, I mean... Uh, I mean, we've got literature prior to 1959. Of course. Yeah, so, of course. So why did you say that? Yeah, so, yeah. No, there's people that, I remember one review said, I wonder if he's ever heard of Bliss Carmen. Yes, yeah. I've yeah. heard of Bliss Carmen. I wrote a book about Bliss or, Carmen. Okay, that'll so, do, yeah. <laughs> or so, A.M. Klein, A.M. Klein, for example. Yeah, or A.M. Klein, A.M. Klein, or, well, there was one review that wondered why I'd left out Lucy Mom Montgomery. And, um, yeah. You know, because they're dead is sort of my, my short answer. They're dead at the time the book begins. Um what I would say is that it's it's obviously not true that there is no literature in mm. Canada prior to nineteen prior to this period. But there's no such thing as a Canadian literature prior to this period. There are individual um like George Woodcock calls it, he's got a lovely phrase for it, he says dotted points of light. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've got before the nineteen sixties. We have a, a handful of writers, by the time the 1960s come along, almost all of whom are long out of print, the older ones, and no longer being read by anybody who's writing in the 60s. You know, there's very few exceptions to that. I mean, nobody is reading Major John Richardson in the 1960s, right? Um, no one's influencing. Nobody's reading. Nobody gives a shit about Charles G.D. Roberts or Bliss Carmen in the 1960s. You know, or Lampman, or Lampman. You know, um, Lucy Montgomery. Sure, Lucy Montgomery has always been popular. Mm. But one of the things to bear in mind with those, those more popular cases, those people were published by Americans. Their their career was mm -hmm. made by because there's none of the infrastructure existed in Canada to provide them to publish them or to give them an audience. Mm. Right. So that's what I mean when I say there is no. Because when I say Canadian literature, I'm not thinking just about books. I'm talking about the whole infrastructure. Right. Mm. Uh, publishers, 
support system from the government, universities and schools teaching it, and most crucially, readers to read it. So yes, we had Canadian books prior to this period, but everything else I've just mentioned doesn't exist. And some people were getting in high schools, you know, my mother remembers getting taught, uh, you know, Hugh McLennan in high school, or, you know, they would read Bliss Carmen and Charles G.D. Roberts in the 20s and 30s. But, you know, it's, it's, it's in an anthology of British literature, right? It's in an anthology. It's like here at the University of Toronto, you, the AMCAN course was American literature with a Canadian novel tacked on the end of it. Um, you see what I'm getting? So there are certainly, and I understand what people are getting at when they say, you know, he thinks he's trying to say Canadian literature began at a nothing in 1960. Literary um, culture, maybe. Yeah, can lit is what began, right? Okay. There are obviously, I mean, remember, my first book is about writers who left this country because there wasn't a market here for them. And then, by the way, writers who got told that you no longer count as Canadian literature because they wrote stories set elsewhere. You know what happened to Ernest Thompson Seton, for example. You know, we, we, we like some of his stories because they're set in the Don Valley. But the stuff he does in the States, that's not part of Canadian literature. Right? Um, so so that's, that's the first part. You know, I, I, but you're also asking about um, what I mean by how we got to a literature without a country? Yeah. So, I, I, I mean by that that, to me today, Canadian literature is not a, a nationalist phenomena anymore, um, if it ever really was. There was a period, you know, maybe the easiest way to, to answer this is that you probably remember in the 70s, going into bookstores and there'd be Canadiana sections in the bookstores. Right? You know, like there's the canoeing manual next to the novel on Margaret Atwood and Charlie Farquharson books were, you know, inevitably going to be there as well. And we had all Canadian bookstores there for a while. Um, we don't have those anymore. Right? Canadian fiction in most bookstores in this country, new bookstores, is just fiction. It is shelved alphabetically by the author's next name, regardless of country of origin. Um, the Canadianness of it no longer matters to us in, in one of the most important places, which, as I've said, is for me the economic market, right, where we sell the books. Um, and so, you know, that for me is the sign that Canadian literature, in a way you read it as a sign of Canadian literature's maturity, that, that we've, you know... Post-national. Right, right, yeah. that we've, we've arrived mm -hmm. at a point where we no longer need to put maple leaf stickers on the spines of our books. And it, where it's no longer... Because there's a brief little period there in the 60s and 70s where reading Can Lit was a duty. Um, it was something you did to feel good about your, your country. And there are aspects of that that I frankly miss. I mean, I do think it's kind of a shame that at most of the universities in this country you can do a degree in English literature without ever reading a Canadian novel. I, I can't imagine that happening in the United States, right? That you would do a degree, an English degree, an English lit degree in an American university and not read an American book. That, that just, uh, I can't imagine that that happens. But it happens, it can happen here. Um, Why does that happen? Uh, yeah, who dictates, I don't know. Who dictates that you well, have to read Canadian? Well, there is, first, I mean, for post-secondary, post there is, you know, no national oversight curriculum mm -hmm. are decided by individual universities and individual departments. So it's a very good question. How, how, how did that happen? Um, uh, I, I don't know the answer. I mean, why we got to that point that, I don't know. 
Um, but it is that at 11 of the 20 largest universities in this country, you can do an English degree without reading a Canadian book. Now, I'm guessing most of them actually do. Do you see what I mean? Like, all I'm saying yeah, is they're not required yeah. courses. I'm yeah. guessing most of them actually do. Yeah. It's, in a way, that's refreshing. To be, to be Canadian means that you don't have to be patriotic. Right. Maybe that's, you know, maybe it's, but that's kind of a myth in itself, right? We're Canadians are the patriots who like to say we're not patriots. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, that's part of our patriotism, right? <laughs> um, yeah. um, uh, so what I'm getting at with that example, though, of the you know we don't have those sections of the bookstores anymore. That's what I mean by post-national. You know, most writers do not get up in the morning and say to themselves, "Say you're a fiction writer, you don't get up in the morning and say to yourself, I'm going to write a Canadian novel." You say to yourself, "I'm going to write a novel," and then, and then probably that novel is going to come out of your region, if anything, as opposed to your nation. That's uh, Northrop Fry. Yeah, probably a lot of what I say is stolen from Northrop Fry. Yeah, yeah. Fry thinks regionalism is what comes after nationalism, actually. But there was a brief moment there in the 60s, right around Centennial, where a number of writers did get up in the morning and say, I'm going to write a Canadian, the Canadian novel, in response to America. We might actually see the same thing happening again here in the next... Anti-Americanism has always been one of the most powerful fuels of our culture, and could well be again. But, but that doesn't happen, in, what I'm saying is that doesn't, that's gone now. There was a brief moment in the 60s where, you know, Hugh McLennan wrote a couple of novels... That, that aspired to be Canadian novels, and you know, Dennis Lee wrote several elegies that really did try to be like, a, you know, a Canadian to tell the Canadian story. We don't do that now. Our writers don't do that, and most writers haven't ever. And that's probably a good thing. My guess is that literature that's written out of the sake of nationalism is, you know, probably usually not that good. Yeah, sort of a hidden agenda. Yeah, you're talking about sort of the imaginary world, the the content of these novels uh, or our literature because what you say is the book explains how we got from there to here and you're criticized for avoiding here the debates over race and gender hmm i'm not i'm not trying what's i'm not sure what the question is in this case well, you're saying, you're saying in the book, you know, how you regret putting hole in the first sentence. Right, yeah, the whole story. Yeah, yeah here yeah. you are, you're saying uh, this book explains how we got from there to here. Okay. So here I'm assuming is the content of the literature rather than the production of the literature. Because right now, to use a overused phrase, it's a dumpster fire. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, no. And you're I, avoiding that fire, I guess, is what. Uh, well, in no, the book. I, I, avoiding that fire because the book was written before that fire, right? I, I was done with this book before we were in copy edit stage. By the time this really started, the Canlet stuff right now blew up. The Galloway stuff. The Galloway stuff. That's what early 2017. Okay. Yeah, we were. You know, we certainly while copy editing, we knew the. That's right. The Galloway thing was out, but this book is not about the present. It's about mm. the past. It is explaining. You're saying it explains how we got from there to here, though. And here, it, it, I guess. Yeah. It okay. I see what present. you're getting at now. I guess I see what you. I guess what I should have said is how we got from there to the end of 2016. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's <laughs> okay. what I should have said. Okay. Um, what I most the point is though that I guess the these racial concerns and gender concerns they're around. They've just blown up in the last year. They were there though. Yeah, and. I, you know, in retrospect, that sentence makes sense in another 
uh, in another level. Um, it actually does work how we got from there. I primarily just meant, look, you know, it's my sense, this always happens in history, it's my sense that there's a significant number of young writers today and older writers, people my age, um, uh, who don't know much about their past, who don't know that there was a time when we had nothing and that there was a generation that gave us something. And that's all I meant, really meant by that phrase is that, you know, but there is a sense in which it is relevant to the, some of the dumpster fires that are going on today, how we got from there to here. And that is in particular, I would say, not so much about race, um, but about Me Too and, and, and sexual harassment. Yeah, I mean, the 60s, there was... Oh, my God, like Irving Layton should be very happy that he's not alive today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the seeds of that kind of culture, and especially its dominance in poetry... Are, in, are in the classroom, fair, you mean? Uh, oh, in the classroom, out of the classroom. I mean in poetry as opposed to fiction, as I guess what I'm getting oh, okay. at. Well, what yeah. about the, the creative writing program? And the creative writing program. I mean, Concordia's creative writing program is a little bit after the period that I'm writing about, and particularly the stuff that we're talking about now, um, Rob Allen and other people at Concordia, that's after, well after the period I'm talking about. Okay. But the sense in which it does help explain how we got from there to here with, with regards to sexual mis- misconduct is that, as I say in the book, a lot of people make the mistaken assumption that just because a community is artistically progressive, it's also ethically progressive, you know? And I have been in guilty, you know, this is very deeply known. Matthew Arnold promised us that, you know, reading the best and brightest in the world would make us better people, you know, that exposure, and therefore that poets of all people should be the most moral. And this is a kind of bedrock myth that informs... But then yeah. again, most many poets, male poets, write poetry to get laid. Yes, that's that's exactly right. I mean, not necessarily out of the best of motives, in other words, right? Um, so I, I just I just think that, you know, a lot of the time we make the mistake of assuming, like I say, just because something's, you know, artistically avant-garde, that it's therefore socially avant-garde. Mm-hmm. And uh, that wasn't true in the 60s, and it's not true now. There's some very bad behavior that is coming from people who have been exposed to the best and the brightest, right? Um, if literature and the art is supposed to make you a better person, it's kind of failing. So Matthew got it wrong. Uh, yeah, I, I, I actually think he did. This has been a belief of mine for a long time that the percentage of assholes in an English department is just as high as it is at Kmart. You know, I shouldn't use Kmart anymore. No, Walmart, no, don't I'll, even use that. I'll use, no. yeah, I can't use that. But you know what I mean. Like yeah, they, the rest of the world. The rest of the world, yeah. yeah. You know, that they're, they're, the only reason that, they, the only truth there might be to it that exposure to art actually makes you a better person is that exposure to art often correlates with affluence. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, if you have stuff, you don't do bad stuff. You commit crimes less often, right? Know. Right. So English profs probably murder people less often or rob banks less often than the, the general population. But in terms of being good people, nice people, empathetic people, I don't see a lot of evidence that we're any better than... I really don't. And I think that is maybe even especially not true among poets. I, uh, I have a couple of daughters in their early... They're both in their early 20s, and I've asked them about this, and they, they've never experienced... It, their friends have never experienced it, and you're a, an English prof. I'm not saying there isn't a widespread problem, because because there is. But is this is this unusual behavior in an English department or a creative writing program, or is it the norm? 
I, I, are you talking about Concordia here now, or is well, that moving? Yeah, yeah, the, just the, the sexual harassment that the professors are... I'd say it falls somewhere between the norm and unusual. Um, what I mean by that is that I, I would not say that it's omnipresent, especially now. I think the culture has changed pretty dramatically um, since the 60s, from the 60s to now, certainly. Um, mm-hmm. From the stories that I hear, when I like when I first got here, this was, this was a very different climate among the sexual relations between professors and students. You know, I, I started working here in 2001, but, you know, I've heard stories, you know, yeah, yeah. before that time. Um, so I don't think it's omnipresent. I definitely think it still happens. I do. Um, and that must be awful for the women involved, really. Yeah. Um, you know, debilitating when, when, it, when, it, when it reaches the point where especially if that person is in a position of power over you, whether real or perceived. In other words, many times the power that, that, they're, uh, that they think they have, they don't really have. Um, but that doesn't matter to the victim if you perceive that power. Um, so, yeah, I, and I, I think there's some very horrible things. I think, I think it's good a lot of this is coming out. Yeah. I do. And, and I think, like I say, the, the seeds of this stuff are, are there in Irving Layton's behavior, and frankly, Austin Clark's behavior. Um, you know, there's, there's stories people should be happy I didn't tell yeah. in that book. You know, it just it was, it was very much part of that world then. Um, and, uh, you know, it, 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 it clearly still is. Uh, you get right about it, or have you got some, some other project going right now? I don't think so. I don't think I'm the right chronicler for the present to be honest um i don't really know where we've talked about a sequel like to maybe the 80s 90s like the moment when canlet really goes global um international sales that kind of thing or now i'm not sure right now nigel to tell you the truth i'm just gonna let this one sit for a little bit mm-hmm. and decide we were on holidays recently in the bahamas and uh we we're staying at this ridiculous hotel called atlantis Built in the sixties, like that's a great big H shape. Yeah, it's like yeah. Disneyland of the Caribbean. My wife went into the bookstore to try to buy a book about the place, the history of it, and there was no book on the shelf. So that's the book she thinks I should do. Because <laughs> <laughs> of course I'd have to do. Void. I'd have to do research, you know. I'd have to. You know. <laughs> of course. Yeah. 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 No, I mean that's the kind of books I like to write. Yeah. It's the book that isn't there on the shelf. Yeah. 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 So, As you say, right at the yeah, beginning of this yeah, book. Yeah. Yeah. So. Good. Well, whatever you uh, whatever you turn your mind to, I'm sure it'll be uh, interesting and well written, just like this one is. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. I've been speaking to Nick Mount, who is a professor of English literature at the University of Toronto in Canada. Did I say that? <laughs> yeah. There wasn't even a hint of sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. You bet.